Hey, so uh, spring is officially here. Today's the first day of spring. Yes, aren't you glad? Um, some of you, though, are um, lamenting the, the rise of spring because you know that it means spring cleaning. Um, does, <laughs> who loves spring cleaning? So I, I actually really like it. I, I grew up hating it, and now I really like it. Yesterday, Karen and I uh, ushered in spring, even though I guess today's the first day, but we ushered in spring with some cleaning uh, and got in and cleaned some things that should probably be cleaned more than once a year, but, you know, that's about how it works, right? Um, so we, we cleaned some things. It was great, um, and all it does is reveal more things that you need to clean. Am I right? Um, but here's the funny thing. So I grew up with three brothers and no sisters, so my poor mom had to deal with the filth of four boys um, all teenagers around the same time. Uh, yeah, she had to deal with that for years of her life. And um, eventually, as we, got, we became teenagers, my mom got to a place where she wouldn't even go to our side of the house. Um, because, yeah, it was, it was like a war zone. It was, um, it was something she didn't want to brave, but, uh, but only when she had to. And, and a few times a year, she would encourage us, to, well, all the time she encouraged us to clean. Um, a few times she forced us to clean, and she would join in the fun. And I know when she would brave our side of the house that it was like um, entering a war zone, and she wanted probably something that looked a little bit like this. If so she could have some backup, if you want to do that. Tin washer, tin dryer. Tin washer, tin dryer. Tin washer, tin dryer. Tin washer, tin dryer. Clean up. Clean up. that she had something like that entering our side of the house. Um, and we probably all wish we had something like that cleaning our house. That would be awesome. Um, but uh, the home that I grew up in, there was, um, there was this back bathroom that was only, only me and my brothers used it. And uh, guests didn't go back there. It was in the back area of the house. <laughs> yeah, just... <laughs> It was bad, okay? It was really bad, especially when we were all of teenage age. It was just, um, I don't understand how my parents let us live that way. Um, but they did. Sometimes you have to just give someone over to their, you know, the Lord gives you over to your sins. Sometimes I think my parents gave us over to our filth. 
And, um, and so we were, we were forced, though, to clean it periodically at least once a year during spring cleaning season. And so uh, we cleaned the whole house and, and cleaned this back bathroom. And one of the things I remember about is we would always go into that bathroom and we would start cleaning. And we thought that we did a really good and thorough job. Um, and it was, uh, it was only once my mom entered the room did we realize that we all needed glasses, right? Because, um, you know, it was, it was a thing where uh, we would clean, and my mom was so gracious and nice to us. She would walk in and be like, oh, Pierce, thank you for picking up all the things on the floor and, and the clothes and different things that were in here. But uh, if you're going to clean the bathroom, you kind of need to clean the toilet, so why don't you do that? I'm like, oh, okay. So I clean the toilet and she'd come back a, a little while later and she'd be like, wow, Pierce, you did a great job of wiping down the toilet seat. But you see the inside part there, the bowl, that also needs to be cleaned. So I'll, I'll be back in a few minutes to check it. And that was like the whole bathroom, just constantly uh, for everything. And uh, it wasn't until my mom entered the room did we realize that it wasn't really uh, clean at all. And uh, I can promise though that I'm, I'm better at cleaning now. You heard, you heard that I, I said at the beginning, I like spring cleaning now. It probably took like the first three years of my marriage to really figure out what clean meant. Um, and growing up in a house of boys and then going to college and living with nothing but guys and then eventually getting married, I'm sure it was a wake-up call for my wife. But, uh, but I also now have glasses, so that probably helps. And I, I can actually see those things. Turns out my whole life I couldn't see very well until, until I went to the eye doctor a couple years ago. And like, you've needed glasses for a long time. Like, oh, wow, okay. So anyways, um, I say all that to say uh, this morning, our passage and what we see is Jesus also did some spring cleaning himself. Uh, when he entered into the temple and, and cleansed the temple of uh, false worship. And so we're going to look at this passage. We're in John chapter 2, if you want to flip there with me. Uh, we were there last week uh, where Jesus turned water into wine, and this week we're going to be in verses 12 through 22. I'll also have, oh, we already have it on the screen, so let me read it to us. So after, this is, when it says after, this is after Jesus turned water into wine at the wedding in, in Cana. Um, and so verse 12, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. A quick note, Jesus had brothers. Um, there's a, a church out there that would say that he didn't, but he did. Um, Jesus had brothers, and the Bible's pretty clear on that. But anyways, let's continue to verse 13. Um, so the Passover of the Jews was at hand. So he goes to Capernaum, and then from there goes to uh, Jerusalem. So the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me, which is a reference to Psalm 69, 9. In verse 18, so the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years 
to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and we ask this morning that you communicate to us clearly what um, your word is getting at in our life and our hearts. Um, we ask that you speak to us, that our ears are ready to hear from you, and uh, that you speak through me. Lord, strengthen my voice as I'm beginning to lose it, uh, that I make it through this sermon uh, without too many squeaks and squeals. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so we're, so this passage has a lot of depth to it. Um, this whole chapter, well, really the whole book does, in case you didn't know. Um, there's a lot of depth, though, in the way that John writes, and we're going to kind of hit on that in a second. But I want to I point out, just we're going to work through this passage um, bit by bit, and I just want to point out some of the underlying messages that John is communicating through um, this. And so... Uh, first thing is, I want us to see that Jesus cares deeply about our worship, and we'll see that by uh, taking a look here. Now, first of all, do we remember what the Passover is? I hope so. So the Passover, um, every year, hundreds of thousands of Jews from around the world would travel to Jerusalem for Passover, and Passover was the annual celebration of God um, freeing the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, and every year uh, they would come to Jerusalem for Passover and make sacrifices for the sin, for their sins, or for the sins of the people. And so uh, the sacrifices they would bring would either be like a dove or a pigeon, a bird of some kind, for if you were poor. Or if you were wealthy, then you might bring like a sheep or a goat. And, and so um, you would travel and then make this uh, sacrifice at the temple. And the thing about traveling, a lot of people would travel hundreds of miles. This is a big pilgrimage every year. And, uh, and so these hundreds of miles that people travel, uh, one thing is really difficult to travel with is a goat, right? And so rather than carrying that goat with them, what they would do is just carry money. And then whenever they would get to Jerusalem, outside the city or in the city, they would purchase a goat or uh, the pigeon or whatever they needed for their sacrifice. And they would take it to the temple and make their sacrifice there. Um, so we can see why the business is happening a little bit. Uh, now, a little bit about the temple itself, it, and I, I just want to hit on this because there's a lot of misconceptions about the, the temple during Jesus' time especially. Um, a lot of preachers have communicated the idea that the temple, uh, if we were to make a, like a modern comparison, is like the church uh, building and stuff today, which it's not. We're going to see why in a little bit. Um, but... Uh, the temple is very different from the modern-day church in the fact that it is absolutely massive. And so the temple court, the outermost court, took up a space of around 25 football fields. Um, it was about 33 acres large. It was huge. And it was consisted of multiple courts. So there was an outer court, and then there were inner courts. And uh, depending on who you were and if you were a Jew or not and all that, you could enter into certain levels of that if you were a priest and whatnot. And so <clears throat> I have a quick video that kind of puts the temple in scale for us. If you want to roll that for us, Renato. So this is the temple. You'll see the little dots are people. Um, that's the outer court that you see all the people in. <coughs> Excuse me. So they're going in from the outer court to, um, this is the 
to you that only priests can go. And this is where they had a lot of um, holy, holy stuff. So they had the, the table, the incense, and different things like that. And then behind that huge curtain was the area called the Holy of Holies. So only one priest could go in there once a year to, um, to there's a lot of technicalities to it, to scatter the blood of a sacrifice. And so um, that's, that just kind of puts it all into perspective for you. But uh, that area where that kind of rock thing is, was the Holy of Holies. Uh, one priest could enter there once a year. And that area, that room, was um, said to be the place where God's spirit dwelled. And so um, the, the temple itself is an interesting place because it is the location of worship in uh, in Jewish culture and in Judaism. And so if you are going to pray, then God hears your prayers when you're in the temple. If you're going to um, worship God, then your your worship and praise of him is a, a sweet uh, incense, sweet smell of incense to him when you're in the temple. If you're going to make uh, a sacrifice for your sins, it's done in the temple. If you're going to pay your tithes and offerings, it's done in the temple. All of it happened in the temple because the temple was the place where God's people went to worship. That is where God, worship of God was acceptable. And, and the thing about the temple as well is, is that is where uh, more or less God dwelled um, in the sense that uh, God truly didn't dwell in a building. But um, that is the space where the veil between God and man was thinnest. And so it was uh, where God's space and man's space most intersected. And so the temple had extreme significance in Judaism. And when Jesus arrives there to this place that was meant to be a a place of worship, um, the place of worship, he didn't hear the sound of pilgrims praying or, or singing, them singing songs of praise. Um, instead, he heard the sound of money changers changing money and the sound of people bartering over animals. And he heard the sound of commerce, uh, of a marketplace. And this made Jesus very angry. Um, so he makes a whip and he drives out the animals, um, the people and the animals actually. And he turns over the tables of the money changers and what I want us to look, though, is at, uh, at why Jesus is angry, because I, I feel like this passage is sometimes misunderstood. And so in verse 16, if you look there, you see that Jesus responds and kind of reveals why he is angry. He says, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. So... The first thing I, I want to do is point out that Jesus doesn't condemn the fact that there is trade uh, or that trade takes place. He doesn't condemn the free market. He doesn't condemn um, the, the fact that money needs to be exchanged. In fact, I would say that's uh, a grace that the people were traveling from all over and they needed to uh, make purchases and they could have their money exchanged into the local currency or to the currency of the temple. Um, so Jesus isn't necessarily rebuking those things. What he's rebuking is where it's taking place, right? And so Jesus is rebuking the fact that they have taken the temple, the place that's built for worship to God, and they've turned it into a place of commerce. They're taking a good thing that was meant for worship, and they were turning it and really perverting it and making it an object of self-gratification. And 
real quick, I just want to say, don't we do this all the time? Like taking something that's meant for worship and turning it into an object of self-gratification. Isn't that what money is? Like, right, God gives us money so that we can worship him in the way we steward it. Um, God gives us uh, our work in the same way we worship God through our work. We worship God through the way we raise our children. All kinds of different things, and yet we can turn and, and twist those things to make them objects of self-gratification rather than objects of worship. Um, another thing that I want to point out that Jesus is angry with is the priests. And it's more implied in our passage than explicit, but I want to point it out. So um, the thing... Uh, the reason why I say that is because priests were guarded or were charged with guarding the worship of the temple. They're the ones who helped carry it out. They're the ones who did the sacrifices. And so their role was to guard the worship that happened in the temple. If something was going on there that wasn't supposed to, they would be the ones that would push it out. And what we can see here is that the priests, either at best, were turning a blind eye to what was happening in the temple— or at worst, they would have uh, possibly been profiting from it, and so they were allowing it to happen. And so, um, I say all this to say, what we're seeing here and what John is communicating is something a little bit deeper, and that is that Jesus, in coming in and cleansing the temple, Jesus is our true and perfect priest. That's what he is. He is the good priest who is guarding proper worship of God. And he's the one and the only one who enters and cares um, to cleanse it and make sure that the worship is proper. And so I, I say that to say um, Jesus cares deeply about the way that we worship and who we're worshiping. Um, Jesus cares deeply about that as our true high priest. But then also... If, we, uh, if, we, if you're following along with me in the passage, you see next that uh, the Jews demand a sign, right? So um, I think uh, this idea of them demanding a sign is really interesting because uh, what it shows to me at least, because I, I try to put myself in the position of the people in the story. Am I the only one that does that? And so I could see myself doing the same thing. But what it shows is really that their hearts are far from God. The priests are, um, or it says the Jews, but I, 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 like I said, I'm inferring here that it's the priests because they're the ones that are guard, charged to guard the worship. And so they say, um, they ask for a sign. Um, and what I want to point out is that they didn't respond to Jesus' rebuke of driving out the animals um, as, they didn't respond to it with introspection, um, didn't respond to it with self-reflection, uh, which I feel like as a society we're really bad at. Uh, didn't stop and think, uh, wait, hold on, if he's doing this, where am I wrong potentially in this? But instead, they wanted justification, almost saying, if you're going to critique me, then who are you? Show me your credentials, and I'll, I'll allow you, maybe based on those, whether you can critique me. And um, how self-righteous, first of all, because wrong is wrong no matter who points it out, but I, I just want to... I, Thinking about our society this week and, and the way that our culture and the postmodernist shift in our culture's thought that's happened over the last 40 to 50 years is pretty interesting. The fact that we've gotten to a place where this is the common thought, that if you're not a part of our in-group, then you can't critique our group. And so we see this with, uh, for instance, 
like abortion, if, if, uh, if a man speaks out uh, against abortion, then oftentimes they're shouted down saying, well, you can't have an opinion about that because you're not a woman. Or you know, we see that with all kinds of different things, in, I mean, a lot of groups in our society. If you're not a part of our group, then you can't speak into and say that what we're doing is wrong. Um, you have to be a part of our in-group in order to say anything. And one of the things that I think is really unique about the Christian worldview is that uh, we are people who seek truth. No matter uh, what, what we are, well, I hope we are, seeking truth, and we are people of truth. And so uh, we can even invite uh, public discourse and, and uh, a conversation with people who may disagree with us because ultimately as Christians, we know that the truth is found in Jesus and we're inviting a conversation that will lead to the truth. And if we're wrong in something, then we can repent and, and come to Jesus in that. And uh, if we are right and the party that we're discussing with is wrong, then it gives us opportunity to share with them the truth of Jesus. Does that make sense? And so one of the cool things about Christians that we're entering into an interesting space in our society is that Christians, the church, is one of the last few places in our society where uh, public kind of discourse and, uh, and discussion about topics is still allowed, uh, which is interesting. And so... Uh, I say, let's not lose that as the church. Uh, let's maintain that because uh, there's something good in that, and I think God will use that. But that's just an aside. As Christians, we are uh, people of truth, and uh, we should move on in our passage. So, uh, <laughs> so uh, what I want us to see in, in uh, verse—so we're just going to jump right down to verses 19 through 22— so if you flip down there, um, and we might, yeah, we have them on the screen. So I, I want us to uh, just pause here for a moment because this is really the crux of our passage. Um, this is, at least in, in my view, the, the bulk of what John is communicating. And I hope that you geek out about it as much as I do. Um, so, um, so here we go. So verse 19, Jesus answered them. So they demanded a sign, right? And does Jesus give them one? No. Um, so they demanded a sign. Jesus says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus has spoken. Okay, so... As I kind of alluded to earlier, John, um, John is a master storyteller. John's the one who writes this gospel account. He's a master at storytelling. Um, everything in his gospel account was artfully crafted um, by the Holy Spirit, but um, artfully crafted in a way that is leading us to understand who Jesus is, and the things he chooses to tell us or chooses not to tell us have significance. And so Jesus did many things in his ministry, and John doesn't tell us everything, right? So he chooses to tell us the things he tells us for a reason, and then the way that he tells us also has significance. And so we can see this in chapter 2, um, the story right before what we have here is uh, significant to what we're reading here, and we'll see why in a second. But um, I, I say all this to say John is 
crafting all of this for a reason. And when we read John, we need to read it with a keen eye because um, all of this is purposeful. And John even says this in his own gospel account in, in chapter 20. And so in, in chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, and we have it up on the screen. So uh, now Jesus, this is John writing, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. So, John's choice to include this encounter and statement of Jesus in the temple is purposeful and important. First, it shows us that uh, Jesus foretold his death. So way at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus um, knows that his death and resurrection is the purpose for why he is on earth. Um, he's, he's not going to be surprised by it. He's here and he's going willingly to his death and resurrection. And Jesus knows even in this moment that his death will bring death to death, right? That he will die and rise gloriously. And then in that, um, he will defeat sin and death forever. Um, but secondly, the phrase that, that Jesus is, uh, is saying here, that if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. Um, I believe that John is pointing this out also because Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all scripture and prophecy. So Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of that. And we can see that here. Last week, um, Cliff preached on Jesus turning water into wine, uh, which is one of my favorite passages of scripture. Um, I think it's a, a beautiful story. And we sometimes do ourselves a disservice if we just read over it quickly and we're like, that's kind of weird that that was Jesus' first miracle. But there's a, actually a lot in it that's deeply significant of what Jesus did there. And, um, and I, I want to kind of quickly hit it. So Jesus took, uh, well, not all of it. I'm going to hit one idea of it because there's a lot there. Um, Jesus took something um, that uh, was water in ceremonial or jars for ceremonial washing and turned it into wine. And that's significant because uh, what, were, what was the ceremonial washing for? Well, it was what one did before they entered the temple. Well, what we know about the temple, it's the place where God dwelled. It's the place where worship was acceptable. So um, before one could enter into the temple, they had to take water from a jar such as those and wash themselves. And then, then they could go to the temple and they could worship and they could do these things. And so it represented or it symbolized the washing, uh, represented cleansing oneself of sin. And it was required for proper worship of God. But Jesus took water from those types of jars and that type of water, and he, made, he took water from that and he turned it into wine, which what does wine symbolize in scripture? Yeah, so you guys are mouthing it, so you know, right? So, um, well, in the Old Testament, wine symbolizes life a lot of the times. Um, in the New Testament, Jesus takes wine at the Lord's Supper, what we celebrate, or communion is often what it's called. Um, but at, at that final night before his crucifixion, he says the wine symbolizes his blood that he would spill for us on the cross. And so Jesus takes uh, water that was meant for washing and cleansing for the purpose of worship, and he replaces it with his blood. 
by communicating this miracle, John is communicating um, how Jesus is the better cleansing. That men may clean with the, outs the outside with water, but Jesus comes to replace that water with a perfect cleansing of his blood that cleanses throughout. And so that's what we see in previously in our chapter. And now we turn from that and we get to our passage in the temple. And in a similar way, John is telling us that what happened in the temple was pointing to how Jesus is the better version of the temple. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of the temple. So in the Old Testament, um, you could only experience God by going to the temple. Like I said earlier, it's where God's uh, spirit dwelled more or less. And so uh, where God's space and man's space met. But what do we remember about John chapter 1 at the beginning in the prologue of John, what, what Cliff preached on a few weeks ago? Is that God's space and man's space met perfectly in Christ. That God took on flesh and, and came down to earth in the person that we call Jesus, right? And so um, God's space and man's space met perfectly in him. So Jesus enters the temple and he says that he is the temple, that man's space and God's space meet perfectly in him. Colossians 1 verses 19 through 20, we have it on the screen, illuminates this idea perfectly. So um, Paul writes, for in him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to him all things. So Jesus bringing things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. It is through Jesus' death and resurrection that our sins have been washed away because he's the better cleansing. And now we can enter into God's presence through Christ because he's also the better temple. And so we know um, as Christians, <clears throat> I pray you know this, um, that uh, through Christ's death and resurrection by faith in him, uh, we are united with Christ. We're grafted into the family of God. And Romans 6 says this idea that we're united with Christ uh, through faith in him. Um, but here's what's really cool. If we're united with Christ and Christ is the temple, is where God's space and man's space meets perfectly and we're united in him, then so also do we have God living in us. And so Paul writes this very idea in 1 Corinthians 6.19 he says, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit living within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. So if you have repented and placed your faith in Christ as Lord, then he places the Spirit of God in you. You're no longer simply flesh and bone, but you become a living temple of God. So uh, this means, and this has huge implications, so this means that rather than going to the temple for worship, um, like people did during Jesus' time, like in the Old Testament, rather than going to the temple for worship, instead, everything you do is worship. Your very breath, the very life that you live is or should be worship, an act of worship unto God, the way you care for your body, the way you work, the way you interact with others, what you choose to dwell on and think about, um, everything is now placed under the, the rule and authority of Christ and is an act of worship to him or an act of rebellion against him. And it's one of the two. 
And, and I, one of the things that this does is it makes it to where compartmentalization in the Christian life is impossible, whether we realize it or not, because we have the Spirit of God living in us. So, real quick, here's where the rubber hits the road. Does anyone else geek out about that stuff? I just think, oh, that's good stuff. I love this passage. So, um, here's where the rubber hits the road. So the temple priests were not guarding the proper worship in the temple. Um, they, they weren't honoring God um, by making sure what happened in it was worshipful. And ultimately, they desecrated the temple um, because they allowed things in. There were ultimately idols and stumbling blocks to true worship. And so what required, or what was required, that Jesus came in and ran it all out. That he cleansed the temple. That he did some spring cleaning, right? And so... Um, where the rubber hits the road, I think, is that many of us as living temples have cluttered the courts of our heart so much that we've lost sight of what we were actually made for, which is communion with God and worship of Him. We have um, so much fallen in love with lovers less wild and wonderful and satisfying than Jesus that we have lost track of what we were made for. And we've taken good things that were meant for worship of God and perverted them and turned them into objects of self-gratification. Uh, we even do, thinking about, we even do this with worship itself. Like we have a worship service and, and we sing songs and then so many of us, so if the song doesn't fit our standards, then we don't worship. It's like, well, then what are we doing? We're turning worship songs into an object of self-gratification. If it doesn't align with what I like, then I'm not going to participate. Um, we're doing it right there, right? And we, we do this with not just that, but all kinds of things. And uh, we, we miss out. And we not only do that, but we also create false idols and bring them in and worship created things instead of the creator. And so uh, we do this with our children, um, those of us that have them. Uh, it, it's so easy to get your identity and your value and your worth wrapped up in your children. And uh, where's your identity and your value and your worth supposed to come from? From God, right? And so by doing so, first of all, we're setting up our children for failure because uh, they're not a good God. But then on top of that, uh, we are worshiping something that isn't the true God. And we do this with so much stuff. Our work, like our society uh, is, so, so much of our society finds its worth in what it does, right? And so uh, we're just tempted by that in everything that we do. And we end up worshiping um, other things that were really meant for worship of God. We can worship God through the way we work. We can worship God through the way we spend our money. We can worship God by the way that we raise our kids. But instead, they become the thing that we worship. Um, and then the other thing that I see us doing, like the priests did, is, um, at least I can see this in myself, compartmentalizing our lives and um, dividing it up. So the priests, uh, they compartmentalized the temple more or less. So they allowed the outer courts of the temple to be used for commerce, but they kept the inner courts to still be used for sacrifice. And I feel like, to a degree, we do this as well. Like, God, you can have this, but I'm not going to give you this. And so you can have Sunday mornings, and you can have uh, the music I listen to, and you can have 
uh, the way maybe that I raise my kids, or uh, you can have uh, so much, uh, maybe 30 minutes in the morning. You can have those things, but over here, you don't get the rest of this. You don't get what I do in my business dealings. You don't get what I do on my phone or computer late at night. You don't get uh, what the way that I spend my money or what my thought life is about. You don't get any of those things. I'll give you this, but I won't give you this. And we divide the light, our life up and compartmentalize it as if everything that we do isn't an act of worship unto God because we are the temple. And so we fill our lives with other things. And I just think about it. We fill our lives with so many things and then we, that, are, that are lesser than God. And then we wonder why our, our lives feel so busy and full yet so empty at the same time. So what's the solution? Good news is the solution's really easy. So um, uh, the solution is uh, just the beauty of the gospel, that uh, you didn't go to the cross for yourself, but Jesus went for you, just like how, if you notice in our story, uh, in our passage, Jesus didn't command the priest to clean the temple, but Jesus ran everything out himself and cleansed the temple himself. And uh, many of us, may recognize that we've overfilled our lives with other things, lovers less wild than Jesus. But our response to that oftentimes is to try and do the work ourselves to clean ourselves up, which is silly. Um, that's like trying to get clean before you take a shower. Like it just doesn't make sense. And so instead of doing that, what we ought to do is to recognize, wow, I'm, I've created all these idols or I've misused and mishandled these things in worship of you. And so we just carry those things to the feet of Jesus and we surrender to him and we repent and then we let him cleanse us because it's only him that can strip away these other idols. When we get to see the beauty of Jesus, then we see how everything else is so much lesser. So um, this is one of the cool things about the upside down kingdom of God. Um, it's through surrender that we find victory and it's through death to ourselves that we find life. And so uh, we can experience that, but we have to be willing to go to Jesus because he's the only one who gives it. And so what I want us to do is, uh, I know this is a lot of informational stuff, kind of big theological stuff, but I want us to take a moment um, as the band is going to make their way back up in a second, I want us to take a moment to just analyze, do, do what the Jews didn't do in this, just think and analyze our hearts. Where have we been uh, misguided in worship? And let's take a moment to cast that at Jesus' feet. If you want prayer, I'll be down here at the front, um, or I encourage you, you can grab someone um, near you and pray with them as well. Um, but that is our response, uh, is to go to Jesus, and then from that, uh, we'll sing. So um, let me pray for us, and then we'll sing. Father, you are good, and we thank you for the fact that, um, that you invite us into relationship with you. And it's deeper and more rich than we could ever realize. But our hearts are often so fickle and run from you in different ways, and we end up... Um, seeking uh, lovers in our life that are less wonderful and spectacular than you are. And um, Lord, we, 
we know that the truth of the matter is that um, you are the only thing that satisfies and you're the only thing that's worthy of worship. You're the only one. And so, Lord, if we have been misguided or we've, we've been um, fooling ourselves uh, in our worship, Lord, I, I ask that you, you bring us to repentance. Um, if there's an area that we need to specifically repent of, Lord, I ask that you bring that to our mind um, so that we could cast that at your feet. And Lord, um, I ask that you help us to worship you now as we sing a fitting song um, for this moment that uh, is by your blood, by your sacrifice on the cross that we could be brought into relationship with you. So I, I pray this and I ask this in Jesus' name. <laughs>